Hello, and welcome to episode six of the High Schooler's Guide to Psychology. I'm your host, Ava, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Kate. Hi! So, Kate, today we are on episode six, as I just said. We are talking about motivation, stress, and emotions. So we're going to start by talking about motivation. Do you have a, do you want to define motivation for our listeners? Uh, your will to do things in general. Yes, it, it's the need or desire to do something or the reason or reasons one has for acting a particular way. So yeah, it's, it's your will to do something and why you have the will to do something. Okay, we're both in AP literature this year. Have you ever heard the term exigence? No, I I can't say I have. Well, motivation is basically the exigence for doing something. It's the reason for doing something. It's why you chose to do something in that moment. Um, I would like to mention that our good friend William James was one of the pioneers of motivation. We've We've talked about William James before on this podcast. Kate, do you remember who he is? Not really. He's the father of modern psychology. Oh, yeah. So there are four primary theories for motivation. They're usually combined rather than separated. So there's there's four theories, but most people take them together as like a group of theories that can like be sort of interchanged and adapted depending on on the specific researcher. So four distinct theories that often worked together, if that. You, you remember when we talked about like the, when we were in episode two and we were talking about like the theory of how you see and you have like the color cones and and then also the peripheral vision shrimp that are supposed to see more colors but actually can oh my gosh did you all hear about that there was an update in the shrimp drama shrimp don't see more colors than humans they just have they just have no the scientists didn't know either they just had really sucky vision. So they could they couldn't mix the color cones. They couldn't have like a red cone and a blue cone and, you and look make that up just to make sure because I'm pretty sure that was just a Tumblr post. It was a Tumblr post, but it was depressing. You need to still true mouse. If you're not that plant over, I'm not gonna come and save you. Can mantis shrimp see more colors? No. Yes, so they're not good at distinguishing colors according to the Atlantic. They have sixteen color receptors compared to a human's three, but they're not good at distinguishing between colors. So so yeah, the mantis shrimp, they can't they can't distinguish between colors. So they might have like well, humans have a red and a blue color cone and they can see green. Mantis shrimp would have a red and a blue color cone, but they'd also need a green color cone because they can't mix the colors. So they can only see twenty seven colors. They have sixteen colors. So they can only see sixteen colors. Yeah, but there's like variations of sixteen. Which sixteen colors? I don't know. Okay, this isn't the color cone episode. I was just talking about it because, like, you remember how they had like the two theories of how people see, but then it's like it's a combination of the two. Yeah. This is the exact same way. There's four primary theories for motivation, but they're combined. So the first theory is called an evolutionary perspective. So it states that evolution is not only developed phys- evolution not only developed physical features but behavioral features as well. Like you've heard of like Darwin's theory of evolution, like you adapt to be more fit to your environment. That worked not only with physical features but with behavioral features as well. Cool. So the evolutionary th- perspective theory states that behaviors are not made consciously but are rather considered to be instinctual. So these instincts are to maximize a creature's fitness, just like physical features. 
are meant to maximize a creature's fitness. So again, fitness is a term commonly used in biology to mean well adapted for their environment. In early history, all behavior was considered instinctual, like a biological drive, which is sort of inaccurate according to Hank Green, because this is a Hank Green stand account. Uh, the presence of a tendency does not mean it is supposed to be there. Um, to continue using his example, we might understand the motivation to fight us to fight out a soccer match, but that doesn't mean the fight was supposed to happen. What? Okay. So, so if your behavior is instinctual, that doesn't mean like it might be your drive to get into a fight at like a soccer match because your team is losing and the other team won. Like that might be your instinct to like fight people because you're angry at them. But then that doesn't mean you, you're supposed to fight. Like it's a, it's a soccer match. You're, you shouldn't fight at it. Does that make so, sense? So like just because your instincts tell you to do something doesn't mean you like actually should. Yes. People are always like listen to your gut, but you also have to like use your logic a little bit too. I don't really think I have logic. Very so often. modern instincts are defined a little differently. Um, just and they are defined just as behaviors that a person or other living organism does not have to learn, but rather knows innately. So again, instincts are just behaviors that you don't think about. They just happen. And then there's the drive reduction theory, which is motivated to maintain a balance between stimulation and relaxation. Individual experience plays a key role in the behavior of a subject as well. So the body is kept in motion by a healthy phenomenon known as homeostasis. And when that balance is disturbed, it then creates a drive to fix the problem. So you're motivated to fix the problem. This theory of motivation says that if something disrupts your homeostasis, you'll be motivated to fix it in order to return to this balance. So you, you might have a moment that controls behavior. For example, if I'm hungry, I might make a sandwich. Like my homeostasis is upset because I'm hungry. So I'm gonna have a motivate, like I'm gonna have a motivation to go and fix that hunger to solve that problem. I'm and kind of thirsty now that you mentioned and it. And my solution to that is to make a sandwich. If I'm tired, I'll complain about it to my mother. And if I'm stressed, I might study for my chemistry test. Do those make if sense? If you're stressed, you're gonna study. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Could it be me? I guess. Wait, what do you do when you're stressed? Cry in a corner somewhere. That's not gonna fix anything. Yeah, if you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know better. how to do lattice energy problems. I what are you gonna do? You're gonna go learn how to do lattice energy I problems. I don't get stressed about what I don't know. I get stressed about what I have to do. Then do it. No, because I get stressed when I'm not doing it. Okay, so back to homeostasis. So homeostasis, according to dictionary.com, Homeostasis is the tendency toward a relatively stable equilibrium between independent elements, especially as maintained by the physiological processes. So, for example, homeostasis in the body is usually used as a way to refer to our body's work in order to maintain a constant temperature. Um, and I did remember how you worked to maintain a constant temperature in freshman biology, but I can't remember. So, so it, it's just like a way your body, like the way your but body your functions. Temperature isn't constant. Mine like jumps around. Okay, it's but like, like a livable like temperature. Homeostasis is what prevents you from getting like a fever when you're not sick. Oh. Or like dying from cold. Or like dying from cold. Coldness. So homeostasis is pushed by drives and pulled by incentives. So a thing that motivates or encourages someone to do something is a driver incentive. A stimuli, a positive or negative stimuli, can attract or repel a person. Again, if you're hungry, the driver repels you from the couch to the kitchen. And additionally, maybe the smell of your mom cooking dinner attracts you there at the same time. So in that case, your hunger would be the drive. 
and the smell of dinner would be the incentive. So in optimal arousal theory, <laughs> it says that drives and incentives can be ignored. For example, you might continue to study even though you're exhausted or eat when you're not even hungry. Again, we're motivated to the fine balance between stimulation and relaxation. So if you're studying and, and absolutely going insane, as one does, maybe you'll cry on the kitchen floor for a minute or have a snack, you'll take a break. Because you have reached the threshold, you are done with study. You can't do it anymore. So that never I, happens to me because I don't study long enough. So everyone has a, everyone has a different level of optimal arousal. Some people might like bungee jumping, while others will get excited over a new crochet pattern. <laughs> Was that aimed at me? <laughs> yes. So some people they may have to jump out of an airplane in order to experience to feel something, and then other people might just have to buy a new yarn. I love buying yarn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for example, maybe your optimal arousal is banana fish. Oh, but then, oh don't say that. But then mine might be like something way sadder. Yeah, maybe because I, like... Because I haven't cried yet. Okay, so now there's the theory of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I was actually planning to talk about this at the end of the episode, like I do the little sections sometimes. But it's one of the four theories, so I'm going to talk about it now. So I might talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs in more depth later. Here's a basic overview. They're like steps in a pyramid. And as you work up the pyramid, you move from basic needs for survival to needs to be happy and a fulfilled life. So I kind of find the pyramid a little sad because it's estimated that very few people reach the top of the pyramid. It's What's really, the top of the pyramid? The top of the pyramid is self-actualization. I'm going to talk about it later, but I also find it a little bit satisfying because reaching the top is a goal I can always strive for. Oh, my gosh. Is it a a smart goal? Is it time-sensitive? Does it have a plan? No, but it's okay. Like, what's an acronym? Is it helpful? Is it kind? No, no for goal-making. What? It's like, does it have a date? Like, do you know when you can complete it by? Do you have, like, an actual step-by-step plan? I think it's SMART, but, like, S-M-A-R-T, but I don't remember. SMART. SMART. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, anyway, the steps on the pyramid are physiological needs, which are at the bottom, safety, love and belongingness, esteem, and then self-actualization. So um, uh, I think I fall short of a few of them. Okay, so empirical research doesn't support the hierarchy, but I, I like it, so we're going we're gonna to keep it. We're going to use it. Even if it can't be proven, most psychologists agree that we are motivated by three main factors. Um, those are sex, hunger, and... Yeah, Ava! I'm sorry! And, and the need to belong. So Ava, the first one, I said, hi... I, no, I said for the first one, hi, I'm not going to go into detail here, but there are a lot of great resources if you're interested, and also because my friends, family, and teachers listen to this. Teachers! Oh my God. But at its most basic level, people are driven by sex hormones, and that's all I'm going oh. to say. So now we're going to move on. I'm so gross. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, but this is the one motivator that we don't need, like you won't die without it. Thank goodness. Oh my gosh, right? Shout out to the ACE community. <laughs> Okay, hunger. Hunger is de- described merely as a strong desire to eat from WebMD. Yeah. Um, I had some mac and cheese so, earlier. It was really... So your body will actually die without food, so it's both a motivator and a need. It's, quote-unquote, our body's greatest need. Ooh. So hunger begins with a drop in sugar level, mainly glucose, and then your brain will sense this drop in sugar level. So like, oh my gosh, we're running out of glucose. Okay, so you respond to the hunger hormone, which is 
which looks like Gremlin, but it's pronounced like like that movie, like Gremlin, Gremlin, G H R E L I N. So um, I don't really like physical stuff again, but uh, episodes one and two deal with hormones. So if you want to go listen to more about hormones, go have fun with that. Um, Hunger is shaped by weight, metabolism, gender, age, and a variety of other physical factors, but it's also shaped by psychology, culture, and mood. So, for example, I might eat when I'm sad or stressed out, even if I'm not hungry. So that would be a psychological motivator to satisfy a physical need. I eat when I want chocolate. Right, so that that might be <laughs> a physical factor, maybe, or, or a psychological factor. Maybe mood, maybe, like you want chocolate. Yeah, you know, sometimes so, you just really need chocolate. So yeah, hunger is determined by both psychological and physical factors, so that's pretty cool. So we can determine not just when we're hungry, but what we're hungry for. So I saw an infographic once that was like, if you want salty stuff, you're in a bad mood. Um, I'm not sure how how accurate that is, Um, so full disclosure. But um, some people say um, tough foods like meat, nuts, etc. can mean anger. Sugars mean you're depressed, sweet and soft, like ice cream. So yeah, that sweet and soft is anxious. So like ice cream, salty foods means you're stressed out. Carbs and heavy heavy foods like crackers or pasta mean you're lonely. And if you want anything, you might just be jealous. Um, I again, no clue how accurate that is, because I personally will eat chocolate no matter how I'm feeling, and also I will eat like chips and salsa no matter how I'm feeling. So there's that. And then humans may like sweet or fatty foods because they're high in energy, which is beneficial to the survival of early humans, even if it's sort of like obsolete now. Because we there's so much food available to, to most people, like to people in first world countries. Okay, so that humans are also motivated by the need to belong, which is the last one. So humans are social animals that we will decline if our other needs, needs are not met. So social bonding has helped us survive. Social bonding, with, like with mouse? sure (laughs) and then also sharing responsibilities like a group project i Um, hate group yeah i don't really like group projects but i do like it when my my friends agree to check over my work and stuff before i turn it in so that's sort of the same thing like collaboration interactions with others have to be balanced with other things like personal space autonomy control independence etc so like i enjoy being around my friends but only if it feels like i can be in control of myself in a situation so i wouldn't want to go and like hang out under a bridge or something with my friends even though i enjoy their company why wouldn't you hang out under a bridge i don't know i probably wouldn't want to like go do drugs with our friends oh gross no yeah because then it's like our mm. friend doesn't do that though yeah so people who feel like they belong have better health and stuff so this is actually love and belongingness is is so similar do we have similar interests to our friends because we want to belong like or maybe so people who feel like they belong to a community have better health and stuff, and that's particularly relevant for teenagers. So, Kate, do you feel like you belong to a community? Um, probably the anime community. So we're going to move on. I get a lot of the references, and it makes me happy when I get the references. Yeah. So, in fact, social exclusion or ostracism is often used as a punishment, and ostracism is just exclusion from a society or group. So anyway, as an example of ostracism, I said, think like mean girls and quote unquote, you can't sit with us. So textbook example of social ostracism. Thank you to Tina Fey. I'm glad my friends don't tell me I can't sit with them. That'd be really sad, I think, because I wouldn't know where else to sit. 
All right, so now we're going to talk about emotion. Kate, can you define emotion for our listeners? How you're feeling. So emotion is defined as a natural, instinctive state of mind deriving from one's circumstances, mood, or relationships with others. So yes, it is how you're feeling, and it's based on your environment. So emotions provide energy and motivation. So they allow us to acquire our needs, and and they're important for how we act in social situations. So they involve physical arousal. I think I defined this later. I already have an expressive behaviors, basically how you physically react to to your environment, to your circumstances. So like crying when you watch Banana Fish, if you're normal. Exactly. So crying when you watch Banana Fish would be a physical reaction to how you're feeling. So emotion is just perceiving something and then reacting physically to what you're perceiving and then labeling your reaction. So again, maybe you're watching Banana Fish. So you will react consciously. You'll be like, oh, what like why and then you'll start crying and then you'll be like i'm crying because i'm sad i've labeled this reaction as sad i am crying and i am sad because of banana fish so that would be you have labeled your emotion you've reacted physically and you have consciously acknowledged that you are feeling something does that make sense i guess so physiological arousal is basically when your senses are being stimulated to the point of perception which I thought was a cool definition. But basically that means that the stimuli in your surroundings are strong enough that your brain picks up on them. So your the stimuli can be very diverse, like long, short, obvious, vague, etc. So say your teacher is handing back tests and you think you're failed. Your physiological arousal might be sweaty hands and your heart beating really fast. Your expressive behavior might be looking around anxiously or following the teachers with your eyes. And your conscious experience may be something along the lines of, oh no, I know I got number seven wrong. How many points is it worth? I'm sure I got a 72. Oh no, oh dear, oh god, the teacher is coming closer. Oh no. 72 is not a bad grade though. Is it? It's fine. Depend on what the class was. If it was like math or science, I'd be like, yeah, you know, it sounds about right. If it was like English or something, I'd be like, what the heck is wrong with me? Yeah, that's fair. I got like a 52 in chemistry and I was like, yeah, sounds about right. But then I got like an, an 83 on an English thing and I begged the teacher to let me redo it. And she did let me redo it. I, I got. You wanted to redo after an 83? Oh my gosh, you're <laughs> such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the physiological response and the conscious experience all leading to emotion is sort of like the chicken and the egg debate. Psychologists don't know whether the physical response of your emotion triggers your thoughts or if your thoughts trigger the physical response. So you don't know if thinking like, oh no, oh dear, oh God, the teacher is coming closer, triggers your like sweaty hands and looking around, or if your sweaty hands and looking around triggers the, oh no, oh dear, oh God, the teacher is coming closer. Does that make sense? I guess. I mean, sure. So th- there are a few theories on how emotions work, but nothing is for certain. So there's the James Lang theory, which is created by Charles Lang and William James. Um, again, William James mentioned in episode one, as well as earlier in this episode. So the, the James Lang theory said that what feelings come after our physical reaction, so so that you will have the sweaty hands and looking around before you have this conscious experience of being nervous. So I liked Crash Course's example. His um, his theory might suggest that you are sad because you are crying. So if you start crying, you're going to feel sad. Like you can force yourself to cry and then you're going to find a reason that you're crying. Does that make sense? That's the tra- that's the, the James Lang theory. 
I just cry randomly. I don't usually. Sometimes I have a reason, sometimes I don't. Yeah, so I, I personally don't like this theory because I've definitely been sad without crying. And to be quite honest, I don't think ha you have to give a physical reaction to the emotions. So it really doesn't make much sense to me because you can have an, like, an emotional, ex like conscious experience in your head without reacting physically to it. Like you can put on like a brave face, but still be like really stressed out, right? Yeah, I guess. Uh, again, so Walter Cannon uh, disagreed. He said this theory didn't work because reactions are often similar. So, for example, you might be nervous, you might clench, clench your fists, but you might also clench your fists when you're angry. So when you're sad, you might cry, but then some people are angry criers, so the list goes on. Like, you'll have the same physical I'm an reaction. angry crier. Same. Oh, my gosh. It's so embarrassing. From this disagreement, this idea, like, that physical reactions are the same for different emotions was born the Cannon-Bard theory, which states that an emotion-arousing stimulus spontaneously triggers both a physiological response and a subjective experience of emotion. So basically that cognition and physical response happen simultaneously. So the chicken and the egg happen at the same time. Um, make zero sense. How can the so, chicken so and the egg so, be there? No, that's going back to the original example. That's not the chicken and the egg debate doesn't work that way. This is just for this. Like, you, oh my gosh. So basically, um, crying doesn't cause sadness, and sadness isn't caused crying, but the two happen simultaneously. Yeah, that makes sense. But didn't my dad solve the chicken and the egg thing? He's just like, chicken like creature laid the first egg, therefore, the egg came first. Yeah, that's what our dad thinks. I'm I'm biased, but I'm inclined to agree with him. Yeah, because wouldn't a chicken-like creature be born of an egg, too? So isn't it impossible for a chicken to come first? Because mm -hmm. the chicken had to be from the egg. I agree. I think the egg came first. Yeah, I think it's impossible that the egg didn't come first. Yeah, so that's where Caden and I fall on the chicken and the egg debate, if anyone is curious. I think a lot of people are curious because I think that's a really hot take, Ava. And I think we're right, and I think our dad is right. Yeah, our, our dad is often right, though. So, again, most people agree that the emotions tie into cognition. So our reactions to things depend on how, both personal experience with the thing and how we perceive the thing. So, for example, if you have past experience with your little sister being rude to you, and she mumbles under her breath after we like this one, and she mumbles under her breath after we've been arguing, um, you might get very angry and will perceive her to be saying something mean due to tone and context, even if you don't know what she actually said. Does that make sense? Like your like, yeah. like context and past experience will tie into your emotional response, even if there's no like actual thing for you to get mad at. Like, if I hear the ending of Banana Fish, like the song, I'll yeah. get sad. So, Kate becoming sad at the the ending for Banana Fish would be a great example of that because she has associated that song <laughs> with, <laughs> with the happenings of Banana Fish, and thus the, her past experience and her context have made her sad. And then, and then there's the two-factor theory, which is also referred to as the, the Schauchter and Singer two-factor theory of emotion. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce foreign words. Um, there, it basically says that there are two aspects to emotion, physiological arousal and a cognitive label. We've already been discussing that. Oh, this the, the two-factor theory was one of the cognitive theories of emotion that arose during the, the psychological cognitive revolution, which I do plan to talk about in episode nine, if anyone is curious. Um, this is similar to the James Lang theory, which was that first one, but and it opposes the Cannon-Bard theory, which is the second one. So basically, cognition can define emotion, so you must feel both the emotion and apply, an, and apply a label to the emotion in order to, to feel the emotion. So you have to have a physiological response before you can apply a label to it. 
Um, this is actually the theory I most agree with. It says like arousal spurs emotion, but cognition directs it. So some criticize that the experiments sometimes show contradictory results, while others argue that we sometimes experience emotions before we label them. So those are two criticisms. I actually like the two-factor theory. What do you think? Yeah, sounds pretty cool. Thank you for your input, Kate. And, and then finally, there's the spillover effect, which basically someone feels an emotion and that emotion sort of transfers to those around them because of their actions. So basically, it says that someone, when someone feels an emotion and that emotion sort of transfers to those around them because of their actions. So emotion or so emotion can carry over from one thing to another. For example, if I watch a scary movie and then my mother knocks on the door to ask what I want for dinner, I might jump even though that isn't my normal reaction to my mother knocking on the door. Does that make sense? I guess, like, like, if you're, like, really stressed out and someone talks to you, you need to start yelling at them. Yeah, that's not your normal response to someone talking to you, but you have this stress from, from like, maybe homework or school or something, so you're going to, that emotion of stress spills over into this new reaction. However, sometimes your body reacts before you even have a chance to label that reaction uh, or emotion. So again, emotion is a cognitive label and a physiological response. So to use a crash course example, before my friend startles me, I'm going to jump and be a little afraid before my brain catches up and realizes that my friend Noel is not a threat. Like, like, oh, your freshman year, we had, like, this weird... No, I'd be so mad. So, like, freshman year, we had this, like, weird game where we would, like, all jump out, like, from behind doorways and try to startle one another. I don't remember that. Maybe I blocked I... it out. Yeah, so, like, constantly, my friends would be like, rah! And I'd be like, ah! And then I'd be like, and, like, I'd jump and be startled, and, like, my heart would start racing, and I'd, like, jump back before I realized that, no, that's just Noelle, not a serial killer. Yet. Um... <laughs> So, so there's the bottom up and top down roots. So some emotions are perceived based on your surroundings. Like maybe you see someone you hate and then your brain is like, oh, I don't like Kate. She spoiled the end of the promised Neverland for me. And then your result would be a physiological angry response. This would be a top down route or a high road. Eva, did I? I don't remember. Yes, you did. Wait, really? Yes. I was so angry. You told me like, you were like, Okay, I'm going to bleep this out because I'm going to spoil the impound of the crossover game. <laughs> they were like, and I was like, he does what? It was an accident. I'm just like, how do I go you, like, you like sent like this little edit. You're like, my big boy. And I'm like, what? That's not really a spoiler, though. He kind of is our synergy. It's definitely a spoiler. That's how it ends. I'm sorry. So anyway, this would be this would be a top-down route. Because you see this person you hate, and then it connect clicks in your brain. You're like, oh, I hate that person. So then you would become angry. You don't become angry just at the sight of them. You have to become angry after you have labeled this feeling of hate. So some reactions don't actually involve actual thinking. Like if you're startled by your friend Noelle, who thought it'd be funny to jump without, and you jump without realizing. Again, Noelle's not a threat to your safety. So it's like a knee-jerk reaction. This is a bottom-up or low-down root so the, the reaction happens before you label it again you would jump before you realize that you have no reason to be startled does that make sense yeah so this is usually due to the anatomic response nervous system so the ans is just a branch of the periphery nervous system and it acts unconsciously the sympathetic division is an automatic response so think of it as like your fight or flight response it arouses you in your crisis and you're aware of your surroundings so it'll add energy increase your heart rate and breathing it also includes respiratory cardiovascular and musculoskeletal systems and it shuts down the digestive system as well and 
yeah, so, so the ANS is the sympathetic division and the parasympathetic division, and that's what controls like the near-jerk reaction. Sympathetic, I just talked about, it's automatic, and then the parasympathetic comes after the sympathetic division, and it reverses the effects of the sympathetic division, so it's like rest and digest, um, conserves energy, slows heart rate, and it sort of calms you down. So so that's just like a brief, like the, the physiological happenings when you have a knee-jerk reaction. So although emotions have a lot of the same symptoms, they often feel very different to the person experiencing, experiencing them, and they often look different too. So if you looked at someone, you could probably tell if they were afraid or angry, but if you were like monitoring their heart rate or their like sweat levels, you probably wouldn't be able to tell who was angry and who was afraid. So they have the same physiological response, but they look different and they feel different. However, emotions actually do have distinct patterns of, of brain scans. Um, I'm not going to talk about specifics of brain scans, but basically like positive emotions show activity in different areas than negative emotions do. Um, does that make sense? Like just having like different different mental functions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so emotions are not only a cognitive phenomenon. They also affect our health and our physical selves as well. So they will affect our minds, our bodies, and even the health of those around us. But most of us are actually pretty good at reading emotional cues of others. For example, if someone is crying, you can probably tell that they're upset. And most psychologists agree that emotional expressions are universal. So no matter what like country or culture someone is from, we're all going to like express our emotions the same way, like physically. So um, that being said, some people are better at interpreting emotional cues than other people. That would be interpersonal intelligence from last episode. Recent studies have shown that introverts are actually better at reading emotions than extroverts, but extroverts are better at expressing their emotions than introverts. So that was pretty interesting. Do you think I'm good at expressing my emotions, Kate? No. I think you're really sad about banana fish, and you just don't want to admit that I you're literally, sad. I haven't it. thought about it since I watched it. So emotional gestures are not universal, however, so you might do like a peace sign, and that would... Uh -huh. So that is like a friendly sign in America, but it's the middle finger in Europe. Um, so they both express like something, like they don't express the same thing, even though that's the exact same like hand symbol. This. Is it really the middle finger? I think so. It's like if you turn it around. Um, then there's the facial feedback hypothesis, which was originated by Charles Darwin and William James. And that's emotions find their origin in emotional expressions. So by making your face into an expression that is correlated to an emotion, you can feel that emotion. And conversely, by keeping your face blank, you can suppress an emotion. So if you start crying, you're going to make yourself feel sadder than if you hadn't cried and if you like, per like kept a blank face. Is that why you don't cry? Maybe that's why I don't cry. There are only two versions. There's the weak and strong. The weak, which states that emotional expression can influence your emotional state, has significant backing. Strong, which suggests that emotional expression causes emotion to, origin, to originate, has less support. So currently the weak version of the facial feedback hypothesis is more supported, which says that if you cry, you can like amplify the sadness, but it's not going to make you sad all on its own. That has support, but the, the strong theory of facial feedback hypothesis, which suggests that crying can make you sad, like on its own, it has less support. And then there's emotional expressions can change our emotional state as well. So I'm sure most of you have heard that smiling even when you aren't happy can help cheer you up. Have you heard that? No. So I'm guessing you haven't tried it then either? No. Okay, well, well, smiling when you're sad can, or smiling can cheer you up even when you're not. Pain. Yeah, smile through the pain. Um, and so you should have shown that people who think positively tend to live longer and happier lives than those with a more negative outlook. So power to the optimists. 
Are you an optimist or a pessimist? I really don't know. I like to think I'm an optimist, but I really don't think I am. I'm a pessimist, like, hugely. But then I had, I, I like, forced myself to be an optimist. And so I'm, like, sort of a half optimist, half pessimist. And it's a I weird mental it state to be I think it depends on what your life has been. Because it's, like, half empty, half full glass. You know, like, if it's half empty, if you drank some of it, but it's half full, if it, you filled it up, you know? That's true. I think it, like, it, did, it, yeah. it depends on your life experiences. That's true. So I think it depends on, you know, what happened in that specific situation in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, if, if you take a chem test and you got a 52 on the last one, maybe you're going to feel pretty pessimistic. But if you got an 88 on the last one, maybe you're going to feel a little bit better about it. Yeah. All right, so stress in particular is a very powerful emotion, so we're going to spend a bit of time talking about that. So do you want to try to define stress? When you have too many things. Yes, it's it's a feeling of emotional strain or pressure, and it's actually identified as a type of psychological pain. A small amount of stress can be desired or even healthy, and stress can be internal or external. So good stress is called eustress, and bad stress is called distress. I'm sure you've heard the term distress more than eustress, right? I'm constantly in distress. Yeah, and stress can literally kill you. Um, oh. So the chronic or extreme stress can be very bad for your health, and it can build over time or strike suddenly. And you will perceive or respond to certain events that we determine as threatening, challenging, or dangerous, and these are our stressors. Um, again, stressors are events that we determine as threatening, challenging, or dangerous. And stressors have three main categories. Those are catastrophes, significant life changes, or everyday inconveniences. A catastrophe is an event that causes great or sudden damage, often unpredictable, and causing great suffering. Kate, would you say COVID-19 is a catastrophe? Yeah. Um, significant life changes. Do you want to try and guess Moving what? Moving to college. Yeah, changing schools. Your parents getting divorced, going to college, losing a friend or family member. Those would be significant life changes. That would be a stressor. Or, or something relatively unique to you that changes how you specifically live your life. And then everyday inconveniences like traffic or homework aren't dramatic, but are far more common than the other two and can be significantly stressful as well. Stress is not technically an emotion. Hank Green calls it a, a reaction rather than an emotion. A reaction stems from our understanding of the stressor. So if I hear someone walking around my house, I might assume that it's one of my family members and not get stressed out. But if I thought they were all outside or running an errand or something, I would get stressed out because I am understanding the stressor to be threatening rather than, than just a normal occurrence. Yeah, that makes sense. And short-lived stress can actually be a good thing, and stress is natural. So it can make you, quote-unquote, active and alert when you need to be. So if you're stressed over a class, it might help you buckle down and study so you can do well on a test. Although, apparently, not everyone does that. Some people just stress out and, pre and like, don't do anything about it. I don't stress over tests, usually. Okay. I stress over tests all the time, but usually right before I take them. Yeah. So chronic stress can be really bad for you because you have, would have this like buildup of adrenaline in your system. So for example, people who suffer from PTSD will have a number of diseases like respiratory, digestive, or circulatory because they have this buildup of adrenaline in their body. Um, and we talked a little bit about the anatomic nervous system earlier. It, it deals with the parenthetic nervous system. So that would deal with things that happen unconsciously or without thought like the parasympathetic automatic knee-jerk reaction. So that'd be like your heart beating or your breathing. 
So I'm now going to make you all very conscious of your breathing. Um, so now it's not an automatic behavior, it's a conscious behavior because you actively have to think about every thought, breath that you take. I'm also going to make you very conscious about your blinking. So now it's not an automatic reaction, it's a conscious behavior. The parathetic nervous system regulates most of your body systems. So that will deal with the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems. And we discussed those earlier. So this will deal with the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems as we discussed earlier. And these systems also interact with the enteric nervous system. And that is a division within the anatomic nervous system independent of the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, but it will interact with them. And it deals with the gastrointestinal systems, i.e. the brain and the gut. And that shows you how stress can lead to digestive problems because um, this parathetic system, which deals with stress, also regulates your digestive tract. So as your brain focuses more energy on muscles so that you can react quicker to whatever is stressing you out, it will stop paying attention to your digestive tract. And the same thing can happen to your cardiovascular system as well, which, um, again, which is why prolonged stress can lead to cardiovascular disease. Um, it will increase blood pressure, heart rate, and cholesterol, but it also pulls attention away from the liver, which help control cholesterol levels. So some emotions are that are closely related to, to stress are pessimism and depression, both of which can also lead to stress and heart problems. And so I think I said this earlier, but studies have shown that happy, optimistic people tend to live longer. So optimism may lead to a combination of lifestyles. Do you remember last night when I asked who was the cringiest in our family, like objectively, it's definitely you. That's not true. It, it kind of is. No. Name one cringy thing I've done. Not to, No. Like, not including that. Your pug shirt face. Oh, please, this <laughs> cat shirt me on metallic okay, booty shorts. Okay, we have this. Socks that were not me socks worn as me socks. Because I had short legs, leave me on. Tucking in tight ice t-shirts. Okay, I thought that like, please leave me alone. You want to talk about fashion choices? <laughs> so psychologists have identified only 10 distinct human emotions. Um, fun fact, most of these brought up a WebMD when I Googled them, so emotions are an, an illness. When, wow. So I'm very healthy. Thank you. Kate, do you want to guess <laughs> what these 10 emotions are? Sadness. Yes. Happiness. Joy. Anger. Yes. Jealousy. Disgust. N no. Fear. Stop. Fear is one. I'm Disgust is one. You have five. <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> um, sad. You already said that. Oh, darn. Um, yeah, that's the stress. There's also surprise. Oh, yeah. Disgust. Well, you said disgust. Contempt, shame, guilt, and interest or excitement. So joy is pleasure or happiness. Surprise is to amaze or astonish forcibly through shock or startling someone. Sadness is the condition or quality of being sad. Anger is annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. Disgust is revulsion or, dispro or disapproval about something unpleasant or offensive. Contempt is disdain or the feeling of which you might regard something unsavory. Shameful is a painful version of humility or regret. Fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the idea that something is dangerous, threatening, or likely to cause pain. And guilt is feeling responsible for uh, or regret for an action that was perceived as wrong. And then excitement or interest is enthusiasm or eagerness. So people have also suggested that pride and love be included to this 10. And then all other emotions are a combination of this original 10. 
However, newer studies have shown that there may be as many as 27 emotions, which would be admiration, adoration, aesthetic appreciation, amusement, anxiety, awe, awkwardness, boredom, calmness, confusion, craving, disgust, empathetic pain, empathetic pain enhancement, envy, excitement, fear, horror, interest, joy, nostalgia, romance, sadness, satisfaction, sexual desire, sympathy, and triumph. Wow. So then there's the two-dimensional theory which is there's this always there's always an underlying arousal dimension which determines where on the spectrum the emotion lays. So emotions are spe- expressed on a spectrum. Kate, like do you know like the political square, mm-hmm. like and like there's the little quadrants. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing for emotions. So positive emotions will be on the upper vector where like republicanism is. Yeah. And then negative emotions are like down on the bottom. Or is it authoritarian and libertarian? I don't know. Oh, yeah, because it's right is, like, republicanism, left is democraticism, top is authoritarian, like, authoritarian, right, alt-right, and then there's libertarian, I think. So then positive emotions are on the top, where authoritarian would be. Um, negative emotions are on the bottom, and then there are... And the four things are positive or negative, and high arousal or low arousal. So if you were posit- if you had a pi- uh, bleh. if you had a positive emotion and it was a high arousal, it would be like excited or enthusiastic. But if you were a high arousal and it was negative, it'd be like angry or afraid. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then these polarities affect our physiological state. So for if you're like we were talking about how emotions have a cognitive label and a physiological reaction. So then if you're enthusiastic, you might be smiling a lot or jumping up and down or something to that effect. But if you're afraid, your heart might rate speed up and your hands might start sweating or something to that effect. And like I said in the first episode, what is psychological is biological. So your your mental state will have a lot to do with what's happening biologically. Don't just nod in. This is an audio podcast. No one can see you nodding. I'm nodding. And then we tend to overestimate the duration of our emotions, especially negative ones, and underestimate our ability to adapt and overcome negative experiences. So basically, like, if you're sad, you're like, I'll never be happy again. Does that make sense? Me after watching Banana Fish. Now we're just going to talk about three little sections, and that is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the starvation experiment, and um, ostracization and its effects. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, again, this is one of the, the theories, I believe. Was it one of the theories? I think so. Um, so I again, I really like this hierarchy, so I'm going to talk about it again. So this was pro- proposed in Maslow's theory of human motivation. So it doesn't have a lot of scientific backing, even Maslow recognizes, but it's still in line with other de- developmental psychological theories, and it represents what patterns humans generally move through. So do you, do you remember the steps of the pyramid? No, but I remember that the second to last one was, like, self-esteem. Yeah. So it's physical needs, physiological needs, sorry, safety, social belonging, self-esteem, and then self-actualization. And then some people add a final step that's, like, transcendence. So physiological needs are, like, food, water, air, shelter, all the stuff people tell you that you need to find if you were lost in a wilderness. Do you remember doing those? Yeah, you have, what is it, an hour to find shelter? Uh, three, a day to find water and three days to find food or something. Something like that. Um, the stuff you can't live more than a few weeks without. The official list is uh, clean air, homeostasis, health, food and water, sleep, clothes, and then shelter. And then next is safety, which is basically wanting to feel safe. 
So the list is personal security, emotional security, financial security, health again, and then safety from injury or accidents. The next one is social belonging. We talked a lot about this earlier. You can't sit with us. Yeah, you can't sit with us. That would be ostracization, but ostracization, which I'm going to talk about in like just 10 minutes or so, is a, is a part of the social belonging. So it, it's a sense of belongingness. And again, humans are social creatures. So they seek acceptance among social groups, small or large. I love how I said they, like I'm not a human. So we seek acceptance among social groups. Um, absence of this can lead to depression, social anxiety, or even loneliness, or loneliness, not even. Um, and the, the desire of social belonging is particularly strong in children. Uh, the list for this one is relatively short. It's just you need friendships, intimacy, family. Um, and I would like to include that intimacy does not need ne necessarily need to be like sexual. It can just be like having an, like a close relationship with somebody. And then self-esteem. Basically, we want status and recognition. We want to feel respected and we want to have self-respect. So you may have, you want to be accepted and valued. So inferiority complexes may result from a lack of self-esteem. And then there are two versions, high and low. So low is respect from others and then high is self-respect. So you, to have self-esteem, you need to have both respect from others and respect for yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then some people consider this to the top. Some people consider it second to the top, then there's self-actualization. We want to reach our full potential. We want to be successful. Other people are motivated to see if self-actualization have already reached the other levels of the hierarchy to understand themselves, their surroundings, and their relationships. So in order to reach self-actualization, you have to meet all the other levels of the pyramid. Um, and most people never reach this stage, which is kind of sad to think about. Um, and so the list would be partner acquisition, parenting, developing abilities and talents, and pursuing goals. And then finally, some people consider this to be the top of the pyramid. Other people don't count it as part of the pyramid. Um, it's transcendence, which is basically altruism or spirituality, and that's the desire to reach the infinite, um, relating to the world and the cosmos and everyone in it. And very few pe people reach this stage of desiring to reach the cosmos. So that's it for Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So now we're going to talk about the starvation experiment. Um, just before we start, I'd like to place a strong trigger warning here for eating disorders, especially the last little bit where you talk about the results. Um, but I will give another warning there. So if, if you want to listen to all of that, except that last part, I'll, I'll warn you again there. Um, and in the t episode description, I will place a timestamp of where you can skip to to skip this section as well. So the official name of the experiment is the Minnesota Starvation Study. So at this point of this study, which I mentioned earlier in the episode, the U.S. was in war times. It was the 1940s, so it was World War II. And so many soldiers had to function on less calories than they were used to because of shortages and such. So many scientists wanted to know how this would affect them and how to rehabilitate them after they had come back from this the war having so little calories. They wanted to know how it would affect them physiologically and psychologically. So the study is, connect is conducted by Ansel Keys and Joseph Brozek in 1944 at the University of Minnesota, hence the name Minnesota Starvation Study. And the study itself was conducted under controlled conditions, and it was like having and it was having the participants enter a state of semi-starvation. So they had 36 precipitants. All of them were men, and all of them were very healthy. So the requirements were you must be in good mental and physical health, get along well with others, and have an interest in rehabilitation. So the participants had jobs, they worked in the laboratory, they went to university classes, they participated in university activities during the length of the experience study, and then factors were measured constantly like weight, strength, endurance, and they were even giving personality and intelligence tests. 
so that would be physiological physiological like weight and strength and then um psychological like like personality and intelligence so the trigger warning starts here um so they started with the control period which is about 12 weeks they collected data from the participants normal eating habits and they all ate food provided by a full-time cook in the facility under the observation of a dietitian so each person was uh, tailored specifically to the participant but they ate on average 3,500 calories per day with the correct amount of nutrients it's a lot of calories per day yeah. Like, I know they're, like, young, healthy men and all, but it's, like, that's a lot of calories. Like, isn't it, like, 2,000 per day? And so after this first stage was the semi-starvation stage, which was 24 weeks. And here they cut the caloric intake in half. So they served two cap meals per day, each with about 1,570 calories. And most of them lost up to 25% of their body weight during this time. And then there was the controlled rehabilitation, which was about 12 weeks long. So they divided into four groups with different amounts of caloric intake and started at a low quantity. And then finally, there was unrestricted rehabilitation, which was eight weeks long, and only 12 participants were in this part of the study. Um, and they were allowed to choose their own meals. And most of them ate between 8,000 and 10,000 calories per day during this period when they, weren't, when they were told they could eat anything they wanted. That's like a lot. That is a lot. Yeah, so for all eight to ten months, all the participants were closely monitored. So not only did they change physically, they changed mentally as well. As I've already said, they lost about a quarter of their weight. So um, let's say someone weighs 100 pounds, they would weigh 75 by the end of it, which is a huge drop. Um, so food and eating became like a focal point of their lives. They became obsessed with food. They talked about it. They read about it. They dreamed about it. They daydreamed about it. Um, and I've totally, Sounds like Sasha. I've totally had like food daydreams, like tortilla soup and fajitas, but this mm, is like, yeah. I know, right? But this is like on a totally different level. Some even developed concentration problems because they were too preoccupied thinking about food. Some started collecting cookbooks or reading recipes for fun. And four even changed their career path after the study with three becoming chefs and one going into <laughs> agriculture. <laughs> So they, Maybe they, sounds fun though. I know. So some started literally licking their plates clean and became upset when others quote unquote wasted food. Um, they became possessive of their food. They didn't like to share it with anyone. And they also started obsessively chewing gum so much that the scientists had to limit, uh, place a limit on their consumption to two packs of gum a day, which is a lot of gum. They had trouble reading their own hunger cues and they, they developed patterns of binge eating and then purging. They developed body image concerns, collected food-themed objects, slowed down when eating, and made it last for hours when it should have taken minutes. They also used more spices in their cooking, became more introverted, developed anxiety and depressive symptoms, became more sensitive and argumentative, and again, a lot of these symptoms are in eating disorders, which is why the study has come to help a lot more in a modern context. So since I do have to talk about motivation, since that is the episode, I should tell you how it all ties into this experiment. So if someone is lacking something, then that's what they seek. Because they were lacking food, they, they became obsessed with food. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's very similar to the hierarchy they just discussed. So th they would they lacked this very basic physiological need, so they would became obsessed with fulfilling this need. Or if you want to talk about drive and incentive, they were driven by their lack of food, and the incentive was to sort of maybe try to replicate this food in a way that wasn't consumption, but rather like just obsessing over it. I feel like I should have written more. Um, but all right, that's it. Let's move on to something little, a little more upbeat, social ostracization. <laughs> so Kate, do you know what social ostracization is? It's what you, 
being left out of the group. Yeah, it, the word has its origins in ancient Greece, and it was when a citizen was banned from the city, uh, traditionally Athens, for 10 years. 10 whole years. So what they were they... cut off of their community for 10 years. And it usually took place as a preventative measure rather than a punishment to, to banish people who are deemed a threat to a political leader. Scary. Yeah, so Kipling Williams was a social psychologist who talked extensively about the modern phenomenon. He said ostracization is any act of excluding or ignoring someone or a group of people. It can also be a refusing to communicate with someone. So it'd be like ghosting someone would technically be ostracization. So the internet has made ostracization much easier to accomplish. It's called cyber ostracization. So ghosting someone would or ignoring emails would be a form of cyber ostracism. So like Kate, when I never apply to your text, I'm technically cyber ostracizing you. So sad. The most simple definition of ostracism is basically being purposefully excluded from a community or a person's life. Um, and groups of people and individuals can both be ostracized either by a group or an, or an individual. So an individual can ostracize a whole group. They can be like, I'm not being ostracized. I'm ostracizing them, right? And being ignored or excluded is just a part of a human experience. It's almost inevitable. However, prolonged ostracization can have bad effects, namely loneliness, depression, and aggression. Like incels? Yes, sure. And I was going to use an anime example, an example of Misaka. No, Misaki. Would be Misaki from another because our whole class ignored her to prevent a murder spree. So Mikasa is from Attack on Titan. So Misaki was ignored by her whole class because they're like, we don't want to die. So that was such a good show. It is such a good show. All right. so, So that's everything. After this is just citations, and if there's more than, like, two minutes, then I probably put little funny bloopers from the episode at the end, as I'm one to do. So if you want to listen to those, stick around. But uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time in episode seven, which is about medication altered states and changing how the brain operates. Bye. Hi. Somehow my sites from when I first recorded this got deleted, so I'm just... Uh, putting them in now. So for this episode, I used Crash Courses, numbers 17, 25, and 26, uh, Dictionary.com, Lumen Learning, GoWayWellMind.com, ShareCare.com, and this was someone called Mike, Dr. Michael Rosen who posted the article that I used, um, Wikipedia.org, AlleyDog.com, and Forbes.com. So thank you for listening. Um, also, fun fact, it's been almost a year since I recorded this episode, and I'm just now editing it, so yay. Okay, bye.